On Monday, March 17, 2008, Emma is home alone with her two kids, Saga, who is one and a half, and Max, who is three. There is a knock on the door, but the person knocking has evil intentions. Ten days later, Emma wakes up in the hospital, and her life is forever changed. Hi, and welcome to episode 4 of True Crime Sweden. I am Pernilla, your host. I've been told that you don't really catch my name when I say it. It is a Swedish name, and it's spelled P-E-R-N-I-L-L-A. Pernilla. So, now you know. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for all the positive feedback. That means so much to me. If you want to reach me, you can email me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or search for True Crime Sweden on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. To help the show grow, it would be great if you would take the time to rate and review on iTunes and don't forget, forget to subscribe. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into the case. But before we start, I want to give a short warning here. This case contains the brutal killing of two small kids. I won't go into any details of their injuries or anything like that. But if you think that this is not for you, please consider whether you should continue listening or not. It was a normal Monday as any other Monday. Emma, young as Stieg, 23, was at home with her kids, an 18-month-old girl named Saga, and her brother Max, who was three years old. On this day, Max's kindergarten was closed, so they instead went to an open kindergarten I just want to explain really short what an open kindergarten is, if you're not familiar with that. Open kindergarten is like any other kindergarten. They have toys for the kids and so on. But you must stay there and take care of your own kids yourself. So there's no babysitting service included. Uh, Since parents in Sweden are often at home with the kids for about one and a half year, This is a great place to meet other parents and let the kids play with other kids. And it doesn't cost you anything to go there. It's free. So, back to that Monday. Emma went with the kids to the open kindergarten. They played there for a couple of hours. On the way home, they stopped at the store to buy some stamps and to mail some Happy Easter cards to friends and family. And after that, they went back home. Emma, the two kids, and Emma's boyfriend, Torgny, lived together in a house on a quiet street in Arboga. Arboga is located in the middle of Sweden, about 93 miles from Stockholm. Emma was divorced from the children's father, Niklas Jangestig. And the children lived with her most of the time, but stayed with their father every other weekend. 
Emma was in a new relationship with this man called Torgny. They bought the house together a few months prior, and Torgny stepped right into the family life, and he was great with the kids. Emma's 18-month-old daughter, Saga, she was born with a handicap that made it impossible for her to eat regular food. So she got all her nutrition through an IV that Emma managed herself at home. And her new partner, Torgny, quickly picked up the skills to be able to help out with this as well. At that Monday, Emma made dinner and they ate at about 6 p.m. After that, at about 6.20 p.m., Emma sends a text to her boyfriend, Torgny, to ask what time he's coming home from work. He replies by text nine minutes later saying that he will be home in an hour. So that would be at about 7.30 p.m. At the same time, the kids watch a children's show on TV, and Emma goes online and talks to two different friends via MSN. At about 7 p.m., she starts talking to her sister, still via MSN. The last activity on the computer is at 7.07 p.m. After that, nothing. Her sister later says, that she thought that Emma needed to tend to the children or something. So she wasn't all worried when she disappeared from the computer in the middle of a conversation. It had happened before. But the reason for the interruption was that somebody knocked on Emma's door and she left the computer to go see who it was. The knock on the door must have been about 7.08 p.m. About 10 minutes later, at 7.17, Torgny comes home. He parks his car in the driveway and he walks to the front door. When he opens the door, he doesn't understand what he is looking at. His first thought is, what are you guys playing? There are clothes spread out in the hallway. A small chair has fallen down, and behind that chair lays Emma. He looks further down the hall, and then he also sees the children lying on the floor. He describes it in an interview that at that moment all of his senses just shut down. He doesn't hear anything, smell anything, and he can only focus on what's right in front of him. He yells out, What the hell has happened? He also explains that in his mind he tried to find a logic explanation to what, has, what had happened. He can see that both Emma and the children are hurt. There's blood everywhere. He started to think about the big mirror that they put up on the wall in the hallway. Maybe it fell down and they all got hurt. There is absolutely no logic to how a human brain works in a shocking and stressful situation as this. 
The brain is desperately trying to make sense of what the eyes are seeing. Torgny then calls 112, that's Sweden's 911 number, and the call is registered at 7.21pm. When the call to emergency service is placed, only t 12 minutes has passed since Emma's last activity on her computer. I've heard parts of that emergency call. I'm not going to play it here because it hasn't been released to the public and the part I heard is from another show and I don't want to steal it. But the call lasts for 11 minutes uh, up until the paramedics arrive at the scene. And I'm going to fill you in on what was said in that call. Torgny starts up by saying this is an emergency. Something terrible has happened. They are hurt. We need help fast. The operator asks who is hurt, and he explains that it's uh, two children, one 18-month-old and one 3-year-old, and a girl who is 23. And who are you? The operator asks. I'm the bonus father, he replies. Short side note here. In Sweden, the term bonus father is used more often than stepfather. I think it has a better ring to it. Bonus father, bonus kids. Like you received an extra bonus in your life in form of a parent or a kid. Well, back to the call. As I said, the complete call isn't available to the public. But the next thing that I've been able to listen to is when the emergency personnel arrives at the scene. Tordney then directs them into the house by saying, Hurry up, it's in here. It's really bad. To be honest, when I listened to the emergency call, I was definitely thinking that he sounded so guilty. He sounds confused, but kind of calm. He is breathing quite heavily and he talks fast, but his tone of voice is calm and collected. I often hear people speculate on whether a person sounds guilty or innocent on the emergency call. And after hearing this call, I realized that every person reacts in their own way to a shock like this. And that it's close to impossible to pick up on who is guilty and who is innocent just by listening to an emergency call. But I can assure you. Torgny had nothing to do with the horrible crime, but he was the first one to arrive after the attack. The crime was carried out in a very short period of time, between 7.07 and 7.18, that's 11 minutes. Remember, Emma's last activity on the computer was at 7.07 .07, and Torgny came home at 7.18. The scene that met Torgny and later the paramedics in that hallway was horrible. There was blood on the floor and on the walls. Emma lies closest to the door and the two kids, 18-month-old Saga and 3-year-old Max, are lying a few feet behind her. At first, the paramedics believe that they have been stabbed, 
but Emma's face, that is covered with blood, is also swollen. Her eyes is almost swollen shut. Emma is conscious when the paramedics arrive. She makes noises and moans. She is obviously in a lot of pain. Both the paramedics and later the police ask her there on the scene who did this to her. The police even ask her if her ex-husband Niklas did this, but she doesn't answer. Both the kids are unresponsive at this time. Emma and the two children are rushed to the hospital. The paramedics later reveals that they didn't think that any one of the three would make it. The children are both pronounced dead on arrival to the hospital, but Emma is still alive. Emma is rushed to the intensive care unit and is put in an induced coma because of her severe injuries. The police first look into Targny, Emma's boyfriend, and he is questioned the same night. He was the first person on the scene, and he is the boyfriend of the victim. He is also covered in blood after checking on Emma and the kids. Of course he is interesting to the police. But he's never arrested. He is released shortly after and his father drives him to the hospital in Uppsala, where Emma was taken by helicopter. On the way there, they turn on the radio, and on the news broadcast, it is announced that there had been an attack in Arboga, and that both the children died from their injuries. What a horrible way for him to find out that the kids that you care for and love, that they died and he finds out by listening to the radio in the car. That's horrible. The police continue to look into suspects and they turn to the next person in line. Yeah, you're right, the ex-husband. Emma's ex-husband and the children's father, Niklas, is arrested that same night on two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. But after questioning Niklas and checking out his alibi, he is released only two days later. He didn't have any part in the attack. But can you imagine his situation? To find out that your ex-wife has been attacked and that both of your kids has been brutally killed. And at the same time you're arrested and questioned for hours and hours. It must have been really hard on him. Emma keeps struggling for her life. She is kept under anesthetics for 10 days. Her injuries are so severe. She has been beaten with a hammer. Most of the hits are to her head and face, but she also has injuries on the rest of her body. Her hair has been shaved off due to head surgery. And Emma's family is by her side every day and so is Torgny. They all know that the children are dead, 
but Emma does not know this yet. The family is asked by police not to talk to Emma about what has happened, not even when she's under anesthetics. It's believed that even though a person is unconscious, they might be able to pick up on things said to them. So they were not allowed to talk about anything regarding the case or about the children when they were in the same room as Emma. When Emma finally wakes up after 10 days, she doesn't remember anything at first. She is confused and keeps asking for the kids, but her family just has to tell her that they are not here right now, and Emma accepts this at first. But after a few days, the family finds the situation too hard to handle. They cannot keep lying to Emma. They are then allowed to at least tell Emma that the kids are dead. But she has a really hard time accepting this. Finally, a doctor has to come and tell her, again, that her kids are dead. And when the truth sets in, she breaks down and screams. They were not allowed to tell her how the kids died. The police are still afraid that anyone might plant false memories into Emma's brain. Emma says in an interview later that she thought, about, uh, thought a lot about what happened to the kids. She was blaming herself because she was the one who was responsible for the kids. She's thinking about that maybe she forgot Max in the bath or and he drowned, or maybe she did something wrong with Saga's IV that caused her death. But it doesn't make any sense to her. What is it that she might have done to kill both her kids? She realizes that something must have happened because she's in the hospital as well. But nothing makes any sense to her at this point. After about a month in the hospital, on April 15th, Emma is released. Emma, Torgny and Emma's parents are moved to a secure police protected house in the middle of Sweden. This is both to keep her safe and also to keep her away from media and TV and magazines and such. On the way to this safe home, they go by the morgue to see the kids. Emma does not want to go, but she's not given an option by the police and the medical staff. She says herself that she had to be forced into that room. But now, when she looks back at it, she's very grateful that they made her go. That last goodbye was important, even though she couldn't see it there and then. In this secure house, Emma is totally kept away from TV, newspapers and computers. And everyone around her is told not to talk about the case or give her any leads to what happened that day. She starts to see a memory specialist that works slowly with her to try to bring her memory back. 
She makes progress and on April 26th, the police informs Emma about the attack, but they do not talk about suspects or any details of the crime. They just tell her that she and the kids were attacked in her home. After the police released Emma's ex-husband, Niklas, they soon zoomed in on a woman that Targny, you know, Emma's boyfriend, he had a relationship with this woman two years prior. When they questioned Targny about her, he admits that she has been behaving strange and that she had a really hard time accepting that he broke up, up with her. She is considered a suspect and the police issue a warrant for her arrest, but she's in Germany. Her name is Christine Schürer. Christine Schürer is born in Hanover in Germany in June of 1976. That makes her 31 when the attack takes place. After finishing school in Germany, she went to New York as an exchange student, and from there she studied in Oklahoma for a while, and she then went to Athens in Greece for studies and work. But let's back up to the summer when Torgny met her. It was the summer of 2006. Torgny was single, and he went to Crete, a Greek island, uh, for a week's vacation. Shortly after he arrived in Greece, he met a woman from Germany named Christine Schüder. They were in instantly attracted to each other and spent day and night together until it was time for Targny to return to Sweden. They kept in touch after he went home and made plans that Christine should come to Sweden uh, to stay with him for a week or two. So in November of 2006, Christine comes to Sweden and spends a week with Torgny. Everything seems fine and she returns again in December the same year. On the second visit, something doesn't feel right according to Torgny. He realizes that this is not going to work out and sometime in January he breaks off the relationship. Christina doesn't take this so well. She gets really angry about the breakup. And despite that the relationship now is over, Christine returns to Sweden in the middle of March and she stays in a hostel in Stockholm for two weeks. It's about 93 miles between Stockholm and Arboga and it takes about one hour and 40 minutes by train. During this stay in Stockholm, she contacts him and they decide to meet. She goes by train to Arboga and they spend a day together. They talked, ate dinner and watched a movie. Nothing romantic happened and he was determined that the relationship was over, but he had agreed to remaining friends with her. A few weeks later, she contacts him again and wants to come to Sweden to see him. She wants closure, she says. He is done with her and he tells her again that it's over and that he doesn't want to see her. She calls back again and says that she is going to Sweden anyway with some friends and that she wants to come by to pick up some of her belongings 
and he agrees to this. But when she shows up, she's by herself. No friends are with her. She's driving a rental car, and the meeting goes okay, but she's very quiet and she doesn't say much, but she picks up her things and she leaves. The day after, he gets a call from her at about 10 a.m. She says that she's standing by a castle, but she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know how she got there or why. She's really confused at this point, and she also tells him that her wallet is missing, and she's desperate for help. Torgny is a nice guy, and he feels that he has no other option than to go there and help her out. So he gets in his car and he drives the 56 miles to get to Marie Fred, where Christine is. When he arrives, he finds her sitting in her rental car outside the castle in Marie Fred. The car is covered in mud and Christine seems confused and has slurred spe speech. He asks her what has happened, but she doesn't remember. But later she tells him that she tried to commit suicide and that she drank some liquid sleeping medicine. And when she woke up the next day, she didn't know what had happened. But at this point, she's in too bad of a shape to drive. So Torgner puts her in his car and drives home. He agrees that she can stay the night but she has to sleep on the couch. He tells her to contact her friends in Germany, that they need to help her. Finally, he talks to the friends in Germany and they beg him to make sure that she gets on the plane back to Germany the next day. He promises that he will do that. So he arranged with some friends to drive the rental car up to Arlanda airport and he takes Christine in his car. They return the rental car and he lets her off, but he doesn't walk her inside the airport. The day after, he gets a call from Christine's friends in Germany. They say that she wasn't on the plane and asks him if he really went to the airport with her. It turns out later that she tried to commit suicide again that night in a bathroom on Arlanda airport, but she woke up in the morning. Two days later, she finally arrives in Germany and her friends make sure that she gets professional help with her mental problems. She is admitted to a psychiatric institution and she stays there for three weeks. But during the summer of 2007, she decides to move to Stockholm and try to find some work. She moves into a room that a Swedish woman is renting out in her apartment. She enrolled to a university but only went there for about a month and then she dropped out. She starts to deteriorate in her mental health again, and she commits a third suicide attempt in the fall of 2007. She gets help in a mental health care unit in Stockholm, but it doesn't seem to improve her health much. 
According to her friends, she starts drinking heavily. And she doesn't care about her appearance. She doesn't shower or wear makeup or anything. She's obviously not in a good place. In January of 2008, her mother gets sick. So she returns to Germany for a short period of time. But she wanted to get back to Stockholm as soon as possible because she had several job applications that she was waiting for replies on. It's then documented that she traveled to Arboga, you know, the town that Torgny, Emma and the kids live in. She traveled there three times during March of 2008. She was there on March 12th, March 14th, and March 17th. The attack on Emma and the kids took place on March 17th. When the police confronts her about this, she claims that the reason she went to Arboga on those days was to go and look at some historic places. She returns to Germany on the 18th of March, the day after the attack. Let's look into the days that Christine went to Arboga a little more. She went there on Wednesday and Friday, the week before the attack. And of course also on the day of the attack, Monday, March 17, 2008. But the week before the attack, Emma and Torgny remembers that on one day, when they both were upstairs in their house, and then came downstairs, the front door was open and the kids were at their father's and there was no reason that the door should have been open. It was kind of strange and they were sure to lock the door after that. Another day, Emma was in the laundry room and she saw a shadow passing the window outside. The window is made out of uh, that kind of glass that you cannot see through, you know, the type you might have in, a, in the bathroom. So it seems like uh, Christine was lurking around and checking out the place a couple of times before the attack. And another really interesting thing comes up too. On February 20th, about a month before the attack, Torgny received a letter from Christine. In that letter, she states that she gave birth to a baby boy in September of 2007 and that he is the father. She gave the baby up for adoption in Germany. And the reason she is writing this letter to him is because her mother is sick. She has a blood disease and there is a big risk that the child has the same disease. And if the boy becomes sick, the adoptive family will most certainly need help and then they might contact him. That is the reason she's telling him all this now. Torgny shows this letter to Emma right away. He's really upset. And even though he wants to have kids of his own someday, he didn't want it to happen like this, and not with her. Torgny starts to write a long reply to Christine, 
with a lot of questions about why she didn't tell him before and so on and so on. He asked Emma to read the letter before he sent it and she tells him that this is probably exactly what she wants. She wants you to keep in touch. She wants you to worry. Do we even know for sure that there is a baby? Emma asks. Instead of sending the long letter, he only writes one sentence and it says, in what hospital was this baby born? He doesn't get a reply from Christine, but about a week later, he receives an email from a man named Thomas Emmerich, who claims to be the adoptive father of this child. This is what the letter said. And remember, this is a German man writing in English, so it's not correct grammar all the way, but this is what it said. Hi, Torgny. This is awkward for me, as it is probably for you. I'm writing to you instead of Christine, because we are aware that you might have some questions. But let me tell you who I am first. My name is Thomas, and my wife and I adopted the child Christine gave birth to last year. We didn't have any contact with her until this January, when her mother became sick. She then agreed to contact you, because we were very concerned about what happened, and we all want the best for our families. But we kind of left her alone by doing this, and now I feel a bit guilty. I slightly persuaded her to contact you. A few days ago, Christine said that you contacted her, and she sounded quite upset. I think we were so concerned with ourselves, we forgot about the fact that you might want some answers. This must have been a shock for you too, being thrown into the cold water. Christine is not well, and having such a troublesome time lately, I was thinking to take the matter over from her, this giving her a little relief. I hope you don't mind and understand that she can't deal with this at the moment. And I suggest that you contact me if you have any questions. I'll do my best to answer them. But please, leave her alone for now. That girl has enough worries. Best regards, Thomas. When the police look into this later, they find out that the IP address that this email was sent from is the same address that Christine is using in Sweden. So this letter was obviously written by Christine herself. Christine went back to Germany the day after the attack. And as I mentioned before, the police issued a warrant for her arrest only three days after the attack. Christine then walks into a police station in Germany because she read that the Swedish police was interested in her as a suspect. At this point, the Swedish police doesn't have any solid evidence to her guilt, so they cannot keep her in custody in Germany. 
but they do take a DNA sample from her. The police searched through the room that Christine rented in Stockholm. In her computer, they find several things that point to her being the attacker. There were pictures of Emma and Torgny's house on her computer. And the search history has the following searches. Hide traces, shoe prints, fingerprints, bloodstains, crime scene, kill, hammer, criminal science, Emma Youngestig, Max Youngestig, Saga Youngestig. Oh, that's almost the same search history that you would find on my computer for this week. They also found that she followed Torgny's blog. He kept updating his readers about every step in his life. The move to the house, how great Emma was, how much he loved the kids, etc. So, note to self, if you ever have a stalker, don't blog about your life. And when the police searched her room, they also asked the woman that she rented the room from if she missed anything, if there was anything missing from the apartment. She couldn't think about anything that was missing. But when they asked her to check her toolbox, she was terrified to find out that the hammer was missing. The police now have more evidence and again they issue a warrant for her arrest. The German police arrests her on March 30th and two days later she is transferred to Sweden and immediately put in custody. The trial starts on July 29th and continues for about four weeks. Remember, Emma has been kept isolated. She hasn't seen any pictures or anything of Christine before the trial starts. And when Emma walks into the courtroom on that first day, her reaction is so strong. She's terrified and she starts to cry when she sees Christine. The start of the trial has to be postponed for an hour so she can calm down a little bit. During the trial, 54 witnesses are questioned and experts is called to give evidence. She is convicted to life in prison on August 26, 2008. I also want to mention that they did do a psychiatric evaluation of her and she was not found to be mentally insane or legally insane or whatever the term is. Christine Schirer still maintained that she is innocent. She was placed in a prison here in Sweden, but in 2012 she was transferred back to Germany, and she's now serving her sentence in a prison for women called Vechta outside Bremen.
And to finish this horrible case off in a more positive note, I want to tell you a little about what happened to Emma and Torgny after all this. Even though Emma went through the worst thing imaginable, and she still misses her two kids every day, she somehow managed to continue living, and in 2010, two years after the attack, Emma and Torgny welcomed a baby girl to the world. She gets the name Julia. And six years later, their baby boy Caspian is born. Emma continued to become a nurse, and she is now working in a pediatric unit. Thank you so much for listening. This was a hard case to cover. I can't stop thinking about those two innocent kids. I realized that I forgot the little fun fact about Sweden on the last episode. I'm sorry about that. But today's Sweden fact is about schools. Schools in Sweden are free. College is free. Universities are free. You should be able to become whatever you want. Study what you want, no matter how your parents' economic situation is. So Swedish parents don't have to worry about college funds at all. If you have a question about Sweden, or any question at all, you can send me an email at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And if you want to support the show even more, you can find me on Patreon, on patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. Thank you. And today I have a promo for another true crime podcast that I love. It's called True Crime Island. And the host Cambo, he has the greatest voice ever. I just love to listen to it. Check out his show, True Crime Island. Okay, see you next time. Goodbye. Hej då. Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. And maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode, plus there's links to iTunes and social media. Don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island.